Hey everybody, welcome to TCP Talks with Jonathan Baker and Justin Broadley from The Cloud Pod. In this series, we're bringing you interviews with the best and brightest leaders and heroes from the tech and cloud industry. Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show today. My name is Bart Castle. Uh, currently, I'm a AWS authorized instructor here throughout the cloud space. Uh, currently, work with CBT Nuggets, and I make training video, uh, pre-recorded video content for them in support of AWS certifications. On top of that, they very graciously allow me to consult and work in the industry as well on the side, which was part of the appeal of joining that team. Um, so I'm currently getting ready to jump into a big security audit. It's going to be uh, for a major credit card organization, uh, one that is a result of other gigs I've had with them in the past. And it's really kind of classic where, where I want to be right now. I want to be able to pick the types of people that I work with, uh, the types of work that I get to do, and really choose where I apply leverage in the industry. Um, so that's a great chance for me. Background-wise, uh, I'm sitting on 18 years, going into 19 years in the tech space. Uh, I originally started with a, a network technology degree at a kind of an accelerated community college, business college program. Very certification-oriented, so I left out of their very hireable um, moved out west with my wife, worked for a couple different organizations where I went through IP telephony, went through the Cisco track, um, help desk, moved on into uh, becoming a network admin for a very diverse software development team that wrote IVR applications. Um, so we touched a lot of interesting, cool open source software, a lot of great phone systems, a lot of old legacy uh, integration problems. And those for me were some of the most important pivotal years uh, really understanding what I cared about in the industry um, and where I wanted to go with it. So fell in love with Linux, fell in love with the software development world, supporting software development teams, really doing what would become known as DevOps years later. Um, virtualization, a lot of optimization, working with Windows domains and crossing all of those wires together for our company and for our clients as well. So a lot of different faces that I've been able to wear. Um, fast forward a little bit farther now, and now I'm in the training space. I worked with Global Knowledge and AWS for quite a few years just as an AWS authorized trainer. Uh, also taught for the Cloud Credential Council. So I went through all of their certification courses and those were non-vendor specific uh, cloud um, discussions. And so the cool thing for me about those ones was that it really gave me a chance to talk about cloud holistically and what it really means to the industry and really sell it because I think there's a lot of confusion around what's new, is it new, the terminology and the value proposition for business and tech folks. So fast forward now and here I make an AWS training still and consulting and hanging out on the cloud pod. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. It's really great to see uh, people in the training space who continue to be practicing day to day because uh, you typically can get a little bit uh, too into the documentation, a little too focused on the documentation implementation, which is not necessarily the real-world implementation. So it's great that uh, some of the videos I checked out of you over the weekend, uh, you know, very much practical as well as academic and kind of a good combination of both of those. So if you're looking into training, um, they look like great content and great courses to check out. So do that if you're uh, interested in getting certified. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Yeah, and it's been uh, interesting. Uh, right now, AWS is piloting some other interesting programs on the side that they pulled me in based on some content creation that we're doing out there. So it's cool to see them taking notice. And uh, building community is a really important part of what I think is going to continue shaping the cloud space. So this is this is part of that effort right now today. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So uh, you know, speaking of certifications, you know, I noticed that you have all of the all of the associate and all of the pros, and, and some of the specialties as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you put me to shame with my my sysops and my devops pro, and Jonathan with his sysops uh, associate to, pro, to shame. So, you know, what you know, as part of your training, you had to do those certifications again, but. 
if you're approaching those three different trainings, which one do you think is a good place for people to start? Where do you think they should focus on if they're specialized? How do you see the different certifications that are available today? And, and where, which one makes sense for most people? Oh, sure. That's a great question. Um, I get asked that a lot about where the starting point is. Um, and frankly, you know, to AWS's credit, um, the certification, the solutions architect cert is really the newest flavor of job role that you could think of that the cloud space has created. When, when I look at systems administration and I look at developer integration and customization work, those are classic roles. Maybe the tools have changed, but those roles are still very clear in the IT space. But solutions architecting is a pretty multifaceted um, type of work to do. And when we think about what it re what is required of a solutions architect to be effective, they need to have cross-domain breadth and enough depth to be able to work with teams uh, in a variety of different sizes organizations. So I usually caution people to watch out for the solutions architect because it is the coolest, most exciting one, but it's also the one that's farthest from traditional administration work that many of us might be familiar with. So uh, typically I go to people and say, okay, first of all, if we're talking certs, please tell me there's a role or a position or something that you have in mind where you think that that exam is going to help you. Because those, first of all, those are going to be your best indicators. If there's a role you like at company A in position B and you want to go that way, that's the certification you'd pursue. If you're not sure, then I would consider looking at SysOps first, because that's the one I think is the closest to traditional network uh, help desk operations support roles. Uh, and I think it speaks more to the types of understanding. If you're coming from Windows or Linux administration background, you've got a lot of leg up already on that certification. And for developers, um, the biggest thing I try to encourage them to consider here is that you really are stepping into a world uh, of APIs and integration. Um, and if, that, if that's appealing to you, you'll probably take to it like a fish to water. Um, if you're concerned about integration work or if you're concerned about being versatile and moving across a lot of different uh, managed services or having that hands-off approach on it, then um, those are things to kind of consider as a part of moving into it. Beyond that, most developers that I've met out there are incredibly savvy enough to be able to pick up on any of these certifications. And the last thing that I would mention here is that uh, as a trainer, having gone through all of the certs and taught many different flavors of the exam courses from AWS and making my own content, I don't really think of them as three different tests anymore. I see it as an associate level of information that you should possess to work with AWS. So when I make my training content, that's really where I'm coming at it from. I'm thinking, what are the things you need to know about S3 to do these three job duties? Um, because in the end, if you've heard anything about DevOps, breaking walls down and being able to cross uh, integrate and work with other teams, that is the heart of what is really changing the industry. It's not just the cloud tools. It's that orchestration and that structural change in the teams. So thinking back to the DevOps principle there, the more that you can understand about those three different arenas and get the value proposition for technical and business teams, the better off you're going to be. And that's really where I try to drive the messaging home these days, especially if you're an architect, because you're going to sit there across from stakeholders with very diverse backgrounds and interests, and you're going to need to stitch together a solution and sell them on it. And those are soft skills paired with technical skills that I think make it a really unique and challenging part of the AWS certification and role space. I think being a solutions architect is what I do most of the time. It's what I enjoy. Yeah. My question really is, how much are you being taught to be a solutions architect versus being certified as being a solutions architect? Because mm. I think to be an architect, you need to have the experience. Yeah. And to that point, I would say there's really two things. One of them is that AWS has helped us tremendously with setting up the best practices and white papers models that are out there. I mean, there is just a library full of things people did wrong and things people did right. So if you're willing to dig into that, you can bring yourself up to speed on one half of it. 
But the other half, I think, is more of an innate ability, the ability to talk to people, to understand what uh, their requirements are and interpret those into actual technical specifications is a unique thing. And if you're not comfortable with the patterns that information technology has presented to us over the years, I think that you're going to be at a disadvantage to start out. And I think that's the part that it's harder to train or learn on here is really getting that patternistic part. I really try to get people thinking about what are the data operation patterns that you're seeing? What are the uh, moving parts? What are the uh, operational limits that the teams have people-wise and technical-wise? And if you don't have an eye for that, it is something that's harder to train. Uh, all those best practices are easy to consume and you can regurgitate stuff, but without being able to dig into some of those best practices and really apply them and think back to scenarios where this has worked this way, where you saw this pattern emerge with these problems, um, that part is gonna be hard to train. And that's the part I think that uh, on-the-job experience is really gonna lend for you. So as a trainer, you, you get to see you know, how many people are interested in different types of classes, different areas of, of study. So what, mm -hmm. which, um, which do you think are the biggest growing areas in cloud computing right now? Um, so I, I think one of the biggest things that I keep being impressed with is this network automation world. I know so many Cisco folks and people who are really core networking engineers who are having their world shifted, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in the biggest ways that we see people seeing shifts happening, because it's just the, the type of work that they did before and the type of work they're being presented with, traditional command line administration versus uh, Python automation and all of this fantastic uh, tooling and orchestration that goes with that. To me, that's the biggest paradigm shifts that I'm seeing. So for a lot of teams, um, I think those are some of the most important areas that are beginning to grow is, is how you're going to address networking and connectivity um, while working with a variety of different vendors. You really also are not going to be able to be just a single vendor solution. Um, so a lot of what I'm seeing here is the switch from uh, real deep specialty to real broad generalization. And that, that can be an overwhelming bite to take when you look at how much information there is to consume especially within AWS, 200 different managed services that cover pretty much the breadth of everything in information technology. Um, and I guess for me, part of the big concern too is when people talk about cloud computing, they act like it's a thing that you can go get into as a niche. Um, and I really try to think of it more as an umbrella. You're talking every facet of IT is present within the cloud space. And for a lot of folks getting started out or moving from other industries, they don't get that impression until farther along the journey and they really begin understanding just what we mean by breadth and depth. Um, and I, I guess I kind of contrast that too to software developers. Look at the different languages and the types of problems that they have to solve across a diverse tool set. It is more like that world than uh, I think a lot of operations people are used to or experiencing. For sure. Yeah. So um, we know data lakes and analytics, big data are, are the big hot topics for all the cloud providers right now. Mm -hmm. so what's a good approach for people to take? I've, I've wanted to try and learn some more about it, but without an application, it's really hard to just to pick it up and, and do big data. So what's, what's a good approach for people trying to get into this um, area of study? Sure. Um, so one of the first things that I talk about when, when we get into data analytics, um, at this point in my career, Every technical conversation that I have is always paired up with a business value conversation. I think that's a really important angle to continue maintaining here because uh, I know I didn't get that early on. My, none of my technical training taught me to listen to the business. Um, but when it comes down to selling people on technology, data analytics is one of the easiest sells because you were talking about saying, hey, company A, you have this massive pool of information that you recognize you have. And you also recognize the lack of value that you're getting from it. It's not just some storage investment that you have back here. So let's figure out actionable ways to turn that into something that's going to help you be more efficient, improve what you do already, um, and also 
help you discover new opportunities for your teams as well. So when I think about folks wanting to get into data analytics, um, one of the first things to really look for are um, beginning to get into data structures. I think that's one of the first places to go is understand um, where the data comes from, the nature of the applications that generate it, and begin drawing context around it. And I know that that's tricky uh, starting out in the space. So it might be good to start with just understanding application data use patterns, like why we write things to file systems, why we write them to structured data stores, why we choose this structured data store over another. If you can start drawing some of those lines together, I think you'll become that much more useful as a data analyst, but also it'll help you understand which parts of data analytics you might be interested in. Because there's many phases to it, especially when you get into large enterprises. Uh, there's the preparation of the information. There is the actual reporting and analytics side of it. And there's also this massive data science world that's very, very rich right now, especially with machine learning and artificial intelligence. So if I were getting into data analytics, I would try to focus on one of those three arenas. Uh, do I want to understand the application relationship to data? because there's an important role to play there. Am I interested in maintaining the data stores and the systems that are gonna drive the reporting? Because there's a lot of fantastic optimization work that needs to be done there um, and selecting the right data stores. Or do I wanna face closer to the business and deal with the reporting parts of it where we're actually aggregating, sorting, filtering, and grouping this information in a way that drives a business need? Um, and again, I think that's more of the soft skill side towards the latter end of that, uh, as opposed to being more in a really deep technical uh, arena and people who can work across those are going to be very valuable data analysts. Um, beyond that, there's lots of fantastic tooling to get into, and we could go through enumerating the many ways that you could learn the tools of the trade. But mm -hmm. I always try to get people thinking more about the nature of the work to be done, uh, because really that speaks back to what we like about it, uh, the types of people interactions that we're going to have, and the satisfaction you're going to get out of the career that you're trying to create for yourself. So those are some of the things that come to mind for me. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the strong beliefs I have is that the Actually, the interesting part of data lakes and data analytics and really figuring this out is what problems, what questions do you want to answer? The technology is actually the easy part. Oh, yeah. And like once you understand what questions you want to be able to answer, you know, what products sell faster than these products, which ones should we put on sale faster? Like those are the questions that you want to answer for the business um, that you can then provide value with that data lake because – you're building a really amazing EMR cluster or Hadoop or <laughs> S3 data lake. Sure. You know, that's the easy part. That's where I geek out and get super excited. But at the end of the day, if I build this massive, expensive data lake uh, that I don't have the question for, what am I doing? And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think the the business context is really critical to any of these data analytics products. Um, and really moving into the data science side, it's it's also what's wrong with your data that data science can actually help you do? Or, or what does it teach your model that will actually add value to your end solution in the day? So I, I agree with you. I think that's the most important part that a lot of technologists sort of miss. Sure. Um, and, you know, just recently I sat down um, and interviewed the data analytics team, uh, kind of the heads of the data analytics team at CBT Nuggets. I, I was intrigued, like, tell me what the differentiators are. What were the big problems you guys were having? How did AWS help you leverage that? Um, and for them, you know, one of the interesting things was that we had a lot of legacy baggage as a part of some of the platform that we were trying to develop and the way that we wanted to move. And so there's really two ways to approach data analytics. Um, I tend to preach, okay, if you're writing a new app, it would do you well to consider how that data is going to be consumed later on. Because the earlier that you can get it in the forms that you need it to help prepare this, the less ETL we do, the less transformation we do. But that's also a very uh, selfish view as an analytics person. <laughs> the reality is that our, our developer teams are very swamped with trying to maintain what they're building and a ton of other little intricacies about integration problems they already have that the idea that they would now also uh, <laughs> supplicate a need for analytics as well 
went right out the window. So one of the first wins that we discovered at CBT Nuggets was that we could allow our teams to simply adopt the approach of saying, if you guys can get it to S3 for us, we can take it from there. Once you have it in some sort of format and we know what it looks like, that's fine. Just keep writing it out there. And at this point, we're disconnecting the analytics discovery and transformation process from the generation of the data. Now, that's not a perfect scenario. I would rather get it right from the beginning. And you can do that in your next redesigns if that's really valuable for the team. Um, but what it meant is that now our analytics teams are able to go discover the information, work with it, refresh it, um, and manage it asynchronously from the developer teams who are creating all of those events and all of those juicy bits of info that we're working with. So this was a really big win for us. It allowed us to decouple the two teams from having a real tight dependency on one another. We're not waiting for another dev release cycle to update this report base that we're looking off of. Instead, we're able to load that into Redshift, manipulate the tables the way that we need to, um, hit the performance targets that we're looking for, and allow our analysts to focus on the business need that we were trying to answer there. To go back to Justin's point, um, the why. Why are we saving this, what's the point of keeping it around, and where is the value being generated from it? And so for us, a lot of it's like understanding why learners don't watch a video, or why they might uh, stop at a certain point, or why they might abandon this course and move to another course. And um, one of the last things that they brought up too was the idea that because we have so much power available with AWS, you know, the democratic availability of compute resources, um, we are able to throw a massive amount of compute power at something that used to be dependent on somebody's laptop sitting there over the weekend to model something. <laughs> and, you know, anybody who's done that, you know that there's, there's people right now that are running models on somebody's computer. Um, and when we look at the timelines that that creates... It has, a, it has a magnifying effect. So first you're talking about delay and understanding how a model can help you because you don't know how far to push it or even which parts of the model are gonna be most effective for you. You're still discovering it. And those outcomes are gonna drive the pieces that go back to saying, okay, business teams, this is where we think we should be investing. And that is a really tricky balance. And it is, for some organizations, a timeline that means uh, competitive edge in the industry, for us, it has to do with improving learner satisfaction and retention, um, ensuring that different types of users, like individual learners or corporate accounts, get different levels of focus from our team. And so for me, as a tools guy, it's all about apply and leverage. You can, you can go beat that hammer against things all day long. But if you apply leverage in the right places, now you're really making a change. And so machine learning and artificial intelligence seems to offer us a great chance to identify where the leverage should be applied and then furthermore figure out how to apply that leverage. And so for our teams, those are things that are happening right now. And it's, it, dude, the analytics guys are tripping over themselves. They're so excited about it. So it's, it's infectious when you see it working and you see that loop come back and the business um, really respond to it. And I think that's, that's part of what's exciting for me about being a solutions architect is connecting those dots and seeing the win happen um, and seeing the value lifted. So assuming that someone who's listening to this podcast, uh, you know, knows the why, they know the business side of it, and now they are trying to look at this breadth of tools that Amazon offers to them between SageMaker, Data Lake, former, you know, EMR capabilities. Yeah. Where do you think they should, you know, potentially check out courses on CBT Nuggets or kind of get started in that design to actually come up with that architecture? Because I know the why, I have the data set, but now I need to ingest it. I need to do that first transform. Which way do you think is simplest for people? Um, well, you know, AWS has done, of course, a great job of creating many inroads into these solutions. Um, the simple notion of what a data lake is at its purest form is really just a pile of information. Um, 
but there's only one or two degrees until you get into swampland. And so I think for me, the first thing to begin understanding is what it means to have contextualized what they would call metadata around these services, because that's the part that really creates the value in storing the data. And so if I were to get into it, I would begin looking at solutions that leverage. Um, sure, Redshift is the product that you want to learn. But again, it goes back to the holistic question of what is the context of the data and how does it help answer these questions? And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of courses that really just cover that part of this. Even if you took the data warehousing classes from AWS or took the database classes from AWS, they're teaching you the tooling part of it. So you really need to find some business use case scenarios in which you can begin understanding how data analytics helps organizations answer these questions. Because without that, the tools are really not that helpful. You have to have that direction as a part of it. And I admit there aren't that many resources out there. Um, I would start with white papers. I would start with some of the case studies and some of the uh, blog and solutions pieces from AWS. I hate to tell people to Google, but if you stay within some of those realms, uh, I preface every one of my training classes with saying, here's what you're going to want to learn, but here are all of the resources you need to have on hand to get the most out of this. So when you read about Redshift, you're going to go over here and you're going to study this use case from a health space and how they used it to improve prescription quality uh, or how to uh, eliminate uh, errors in their production process. Because once you get those little examples of how this piece of input data with this right transformation, with this pairing of reporting solved this problem. Now you're really beginning to put tools in your belt that are gonna go beyond just using the tools, but how to actually solve business problems with them. And it is trickier because it's not stuff that's just wrapped into the courses natively. So you do have to have a little more comprehensive part of it. The last thing I would say is get into the community. Uh, any, anywhere in the IT space, you need to be sitting with peers who are talking about these issues and how the tools help them solve it. And so I'm, I'm psyched to see things like you know, CloudPod um, and some of the many other great podcasts that are out there talking about and building the community part of it, because it's that dialogue piece that I think makes the difference between being super effective and just being someone who knows how to, to build tables or how to optimize a Redshift database. Um, so for me, those, are, those would be the big things. Look to community leaders, look to the use cases. Um, and, and unfortunately, you got to read, you got to dig deep, you got to get excited about it. And that's where I went back to the original part of trying to get people excited about roles. Because if you go to that and you don't want to do it and you don't care about the outcome of it, you're right. That's not, that's not going to be fun. And you're not going to get the effort that you're looking for. And the business isn't going to get the piece that they need from you either. Um, and that stuff shows up in job interviews. And if you're trying to be a differentiator, we call them cloud heroes or cloud champions. They are people who can stand across technical and business realms and, and, and drive that value proposition. So that's what I really try to get people to think about. Again, the technical parts, to Justin's point, those are the easy things. Mm -hmm. uh, the tools are easy to learn compared to the, the business and the problem-solving part of it. I think a lot of it's about finding the right people to train with the new skills. I mean, I think you go back... 20 years, beginning of big data was all around bioinformatics. And so now we've got people in the biology field or genetics going off to do statistics or probability and, and learning big data. I think that really kicked the whole thing off. I think that the people who have found most useful in my career, at least, have been people who have really stepped across two completely different boundaries to join mm. two completely different types of technology, giving the big data skills to the people who already have business or teaching business to the people who have the math skills is, is where we need to be. I don't think you can just go into any of these things without the context that you need to make it useful. Oh, no, I think that's a great angle. Uh, one thing I remember, too, like uh, when I first started creating phone systems and working in, in telephony, 
uh, you know, pushing and creating dialing patterns didn't make any sense until I was actually working in a car dealership, deploying these for the parts and sales teams and talking to the call center folks and seeing how they were actually leveraging these tools. Those pieces did not work for me. Or I was nowhere near as effective as I became once I got closer to their needs. And in the end, friends, remember, no matter how far you go in IT, we're not here because the server needs to be babysit. We're here because the business needs us to run these systems to solve a business problem. So the closer you can get to that, the better. To that point too, um, a lot of the folks that I have met over the years who have been extremely good data scientists and analysts did come from other parts of the established industry and business space, and they were just simply learning the tool part of it. And they were always more effective and more lucrative and more successful in their you know, endeavors down the road, both from a career perspective and from a solving problems for the business perspective, because of that cross understanding. And you know, the final thing on that is team diversity here. When we think about what it takes to build strong information technology teams, they need to have diverse backgrounds, especially when you get into these large consulting spaces. You think about the work of Accenture or Deloitte or Raytheon. These are massive companies with tons of different industries that they touch on. And for me, that's another thing that's exciting about cloud is that data analytics can take you on a journey across industries if you want it to. And I think that's an exciting thing for someone who's thirsty for technology and thirsty for continuing to grow in that space as well. I agree. I, th I didn't get into technology because I, I love blinking lights. <laughs> I loved it because I, I could see the value that technology had to the world and to what it could do to improve society in a big way. And so, you know, I'm always looking for that business context or that way that this technology can be applied to help humanity in many ways. So I, I agree with you. I think some people get distracted by the technology side and lose the bigger picture, which is important yeah. uh, to keep in mind all the time. Let's change gears just maybe a little bit. Uh, so as we were kind of setting up this interview, uh, you mentioned that you might want to talk about nested cloud formation, which I think uh, was a record scratching sound in Jonathan's house is that you know, someone said they really liked uh, nested cloud formation. Uh, so, you know, first of all, let's, let's talk about, you know, how do you feel about cloud formation as a technology? Uh, then let's kind of talk about the nested cloud formations, which is a bit polarizing even out there in the Twitter sphere or uh, with our co-host here, Jonathan's. Oh, sure. I'm super curious to hear Jonathan's take on it too. The thing for me is when I first started using AWS, um, at the time we were writing and hand rolling scripts that would administer parts of our Windows domain, parts of our VMware infrastructure, parts of our networking infrastructure. And me and my buddies were literally sitting there like doing the exact things that CloudFormation did for us. And then this is early on too. This was before CloudFormation really got super crazy or the portfolio got crazy that it supported as well. Um, but as soon as we saw that, we were immediately dazzled by the notion of infrastructure as code. Maybe not CloudFormation directly itself, but the idea that um, infrastructure as code would provide us a standardized language for working across and implementing um, specific uh, deployment and transformation and lifecycle changes on our infrastructure without as much human error. So anything that we could do to move in that direction, we were already sold. We had drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago and we were already doing those sorts of things. So when CloudFormation became a possibility for us, uh, it was an instant light bulb. And at that time, there weren't a whole lot of other things comparable to it. Um, we were, we were even writing our own database replication tools for Postgres. Uh, our team was very much customizing and writing orchestration engines for uh, multi-server application environments. So the idea that we could deploy repeatedly and doing this in a software development world, we were well aware of the value of reproducibility. So all of those quick selling points made it a very appealing opportunity. Now, CloudFormation itself is its own worst enemy when we think about the nature of what it takes to stay up to pace with AWS. And it's a running joke. You'll see it at reInvent. Uh, a new service will get released, an update will be released, a, a modification, a new feature is added. 
And it'll take weeks or months for CloudFormation to tool that up and get it working. So it's an interesting lesson when we think about the value that it adds, the danger that it represents from a lock-in perspective, and the potential opportunities that it has um, for improving uh, reproducibility. So I guess one of the things people like to bring up here too is, well, how vendor agnostic should we be when we think about tools that we're as dependent on as something like CloudFormation? Um, and to date, every single AWS deployment that I've ever worked on for any organization of any size has always had CloudFormation and then some other additional orchestration or infrastructure as code tools as well. So I think what it speaks to here is that CloudFormation fits a very low level of abstraction when we think about the way that it interacts with AWS. It was not meant to be incredibly user-friendly. Just look at the late adoption of things like yet another markup language. Just simple little improvements like that were really late to the addition of it. So when we look at why we choose tools like that, there is the reproducibility. And CloudFormation definitely has got that locked down as far as I'm concerned. It does give us a good construct for reproducing things. But when we think about making it fit into larger systems or the hybrid discussion of other tools we already run in our data centers or across other cloud vendors, that's where we really have to step back and say, okay, we need uh, a tool that now can bridge this other gap. And for me, everywhere I look throughout my history of as anywhere in IT, it's always been about the integration layer. It's the most important part of it. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a database connector, you're talking about REST versus SOAP, or what those APIs are going to do, or whether you're talking about um, now data interactions, taking the data lake and integrating it into some sort of usable format. It's always about that integration layer. And so I think CloudFormation is pretty good. It gives us some of the gears that we need, but when we try to connect it to other systems, um, we see it begin to lose some of its value. And also seeing things like custom resources being added later on, a lot of that speaks to people bringing up those limitations and kudos to AWS for recognizing it because they do tend to be very feedback intensive. They heard that and they added new features. So I'm kind of curious, Jonathan, what, what are some of your thoughts on it too? Because I, I would love to respond to some of what your thoughts are. No, I think actually listening to what, what your story was, I think I probably started around about the same time in CloudFormation, it was probably 2015-ish, so it was fairly immature. The statuses of the stacks were still very limited. It was really hard to roll back. I mean, it was it was a matter of delete the stack if it, if it fails, then you can't roll back. And that, that became a terrible pain point. I wanted very much to do nested stacks because Postgres, you mentioned Postgres. We were doing Postgres multi-master deployments in different mm. regions. And just the, the ease of reuse of code with nested CloudFormation stacks seemed like the perfect way to go. And, and it, it, didn't, it didn't execute well. I think it was a great idea too early. Now, I think the tooling has improved significantly and I'd be much more happy to go back and, and revisit some of those types of deployment patterns. But in the meantime, I, I've kind of pivoted to, to Terraform. But to the vendor lock-in point, I, I really don't see any of the solutions for infrastructure as code avoid vendor lock-in, even Terraform. I mean, there's an, there's an AWS-specific provider for Terraform. So if, if I had my choice of, a, of, of best tool, I'd, I'd like an infrastructure as code tool that, that abstracts all of those things away. Mm. And, and, and if I want to run a compute instance in GCP or in AWS, it's the same language for everything. And I, I, I also realize that that's very difficult to do because of differences in the types of deployments you can do, the, diff the different features that are available, the different services that are available. But, but I think recognizing that that tool will never exist makes you acknowledge that there is always vendor lock-in. I've constantly come back to that. I'm like, you guys are, s every single thing that we do has some dependency on some other piece there. And it really is how you manage that dependency that can make or break a lot of the big success stories uh, when we talked about transformation. I think that's really where it becomes most painful. 
sticking with the current plan and running it, sure, we can execute against the problems we have right now. We can get really good at executing around the problems that we have. But when you come to transformation, which is, I think the larger picture is when a business needs to switch directions or they need to retool in a critical way or embrace a new market, that's where they really begin to feel um, some of the burn behind this vendor lock-in when their teams are saying that we can't do this because of X, Y, Z, and you already get value out of this little thing that's stitched in over here. It's like, all right, I, I get where the value is coming from. And we, we just ran into this with CBT Nuggets as well. Um, our senior developer team was like, we are, we are struggling in innovation throttling because of our legacy. And so they basically branched off a super team that's like, okay, if you did this from day one, what would that look like? And they are just building an entirely new concept um, and trying to re-architect the solutions given best practices now. And it's a really interesting model to look at. It's interesting structurally for the team, um, but in the end, we can certainly see what the business's goal here is. They're saying, we get it, there's value, and all this stuff is stitched together, but how do we innovate? How do we create a new space for that innovation? Um, and to AWS's credit, a big part of it is being cloud enabled the way that our teams are. I mean, we are pretty much across the board 100% AWS with what we run. And it gives us the flexibility to look at serverless architectures and consider how it would integrate with other data sets or other interfaces that we have that we're dependent on. Um, and that flexibility has been a big part of the success of us being able to consider branching out and creating a new team that would work alongside of and also work ahead of you know, the other legacy support parts of the team. So I think that's been an important part of this. And infrastructure as a code, um, I think is a big tool behind that. I also really appreciate seeing the new layers like the serverless application model and the CDK, some of those pieces that are being added on top of it, because it speaks to who's using the infrastructure as code tools instead of just forcing everybody to normalize um, in uncomfortable ways. Um, I mean, IDEs are there to make our lives easier. So why not, why would we fight it? Why not let them have those flavors? Um, and create some of those opportunities. Well, and I mean, the CDK brings so many powerful capabilities from a programming perspective, being able to do loops and you know lookups and all kinds of things off of other data sources to now drive my infrastructure. That was the stuff that we've been looking for in CloudFormation that you were doing as input value input variables forever. That was really clunky, and so you know, seeing CDK come out and really start fixing some of those problems um, that are really programming problems and how I want to program it to be less admin-it. Um, so I, I'm glad to see that transition. There are some some growing pains in CDK as well, uh, especially around some of the CRUD uh, operations that you see there. But you know, overall, that's that's the right direction, and I think you're right. I think you know, moving to where the developers are either in the IDE, in the language they understand versus telling them, okay, you need to go learn another YAML format or another JSON format yeah. uh, is really valuable. And that's why CloudFormation, I think, has gotten such a good uh, adoption in the market as well. We have adopted Terraform for the ability to unify private cloud and public cloud and saying, you know, sure. hey, I can run my VMware infrastructure in Terraform. I can run my Amazon infrastructure as we're looking at going multi-cloud into GCP or into Azure. You know, that's all available to us in Terraform. We get yeah. that common language and that's really powerful too. But um, you know, I, I know I've been said it many times that when people start talking to me about cloud lock-in, I'm like, well, what's your what's your tech stack? <laughs> Java.net? Yeah. Great, you've locked in. Sure. <laughs> so you know, take advantage of the innovation that you're getting with the cloud that you're on and, and that advantage versus trying to be cloud agnostic and, and really not get that value. Sure. Um, so I mean that's that's one of the questions we ask all of our guests is, you know, how do you how do you see multi-cloud? What is multi-cloud to you? Uh, what do you think the advantages are and why should companies be looking at it or shying away from it in your opinion? So I think there's really like maybe two or three big reasons to support the notion of multi-cloud. I mean, first of all, when you look at the history of using technology services, there is no portfolio that was ever single vendor ever. And anywhere that I've ever worked in any any of the technical spaces, they've always leveraged 
at least a handful of different solutions to work together. You look at the nature of Windows domains and the prevalence of them throughout the world to solve a number of uh, productivity problems, and you're immediately going to find yourself doing exactly what Microsoft said, which is, okay, we get it. People are dependent on this. Uh, we got this vertical integration model or this, what they call it, diagonal integration model, where you're going to continue using our services because it's the simplest path. But they're also recognizing that there is a ton of value and power for their teams if they can support open source technologies as augmentative layers. And uh, I think one of the biggest things that people learn as you go through technology is that a lot of it isn't always about replacing. A lot of it is about the augmentation that you can make today to improve the value that you're driving without completely reinventing everything. We look for those opportunities as much as possible. As a solutions architect, it's what I try to encourage people to do. I do not say, move everything to the cloud, migrate all the things. I say, no, where's the part that you suffer the most from, the parts that have the worst administrative burdens? And I think when we look at multi-cloud, it's the same questions there. You're asking yourself, what is the nature of the workload? What is the nature of the business? There are real big considerations around the actual physical location of vendor solutions that still play a big role here as well. Um, we can never forget that you can run down that hallway as fast as you want, but if it's 2,000 miles long, it's going to take you a long time to get down there and back. It doesn't matter how wide it is. And you think about bandwidth and latency concerns, those are some of the immovable solutions architecting problems that we still struggle with. So from a functional perspective, uh, and one good example of this, I remember people were talking about Zoom and some of the conversations that came up around Zoom and switching to Oracle and how that was the verbiage that was coming around. I was like, wait a minute, they are diversifying wisely. Their world is all about location and, and latency. So kudos to them for recognizing that and no solutions architect who's worth their salt in the cloud space should try to talk a business out of that into some single solutions vendor uh, or single vendor solution just because of the principle of sticking with them alone. It, it, it just speaks to a complete loss of technology with business being paired together. So I think there's innumerable reasons why the business will want to leverage these different solutions. Now, that being said, to what Jonathan was pointing out, the idea that we could truly have um, vendor agnostic integration layers is still, I, I still think it's something that's simmering in a lot of people's ideas, but how do you monetize that? And you look at poor old OpenStack and all the good intentions that they had about how that was gonna do those things. Um, and in the end, what OpenStack gave you is the ability to write a really rock and custom platform for yourself with less work and give back to the open source community. And I think that's valuable, but OpenStack and the teams that support that, they won't, we don't think of OpenStack as a successful, profitable thing. It is a, it is a piece of the open source puzzle. And the problems that they have is a lesson that we can learn from it. But in the end, we're still looking for those tools that will bridge those gaps. And this is why for me, being an integrations professional and getting what integration means is it's skill number one across all of these different arenas. Man, talk about the wins we got with web services. The idea that we now have standardized HTTP interactions across all of these different types of tools, it's awesome. The notion of switching between SOAP to REST and intelligently using something we already had available, those are all really big integration wins. And I think we're gonna continue seeing more of that. That being said, I also think that there are some different use cases. Google Cloud and the type of power that they offer and some of the actual benchmarks that they put up are very different from AWS and Azure, and they are gonna to appeal to a very different demographic too. So I think that across the board to summarize that, if you're looking at the business use case, hybrid and multi-cloud is going to always be more prevalent. NIST tells us this, um, they, they predicted this years ago, that you're gonna find hybrid deployments 
and multi-cloud models being used because if you're doing cloud architecting right, you're following the value proposition and you're eliminating pain points for the business through the most uh, valuable proposition possible. So I think it's going to continue to happen and it makes sense to me. I don't think that we should see them as having to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, you mentioned location as being very critical and we, although we think about Google or Amazon as having very few data centers spread globally. What they do have that we tend to forget about is the edge locations for content delivery and even more so with partnerships with 5G providers to get compute right at the edge of the mobile network. Oh, yeah. I, th I think they've seen that coming and they've been planning for this. They know that location and latency is, is the... Uh, is the important thing for the future. Absolutely. I remember when I was doing all of the old phone system conversions, we were taking the copper systems out, we're putting in IP telephony. Every single time I might be talking to Verizon or Quest, massive, massive, massive organizations all across North America, and they are having to play mother may I with these little local exchange people who own the last mile. And it's like, in <laughs> the end... When you hear about projects like Google Fiber, it's not the benevolent spreading of bandwidth. You're talking about, we recognize that if we can cut out the middleman and disintermediate here, there is a big win and a big power play that we can make in controlling access to the users of these services. So I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And just to riff on something you got me thinking about, I used to say all the time, how did the world's ISPs miss this cloud piece so badly? Because they all provide this connectivity. They, they're the closest hop to me. They're the closest thing I could possibly send my requests to, and all of them, every single one of them has completely kiboshed the cloud offering. I mean, they might have some storage or some backup here and there, but it's nothing that competes with the big vendors. Nobody talks about, I guess I shouldn't vendor bash too much on it, but the idea is that, yeah, if you're a big ISP and you didn't see the writing on the wall here 15 years ago that you should be offering a ton of managed services, I just, it cracks me up to this point still to see that they, they just still don't get that. They're just still like, playing hallway pass monitor. And I, I don't know, I, maybe it's enough power for them, but it, it still felt like a huge opportunity they missed. I, I think the opportunity was, the problem was they got greedy and they got greedy too quickly. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, a very large company that manages racks and spaces, uh, you know, <laughs> used to have a, you know, three or four X cost model basically to manage services for you. And that's, it's just not cost effective for a lot of companies. And, you know, even when I first got into cloud, you know, when you looked at just pure EC2 versus VMware and virtualization, what we could do at that point, like, it didn't actually make financial sense. Um, it made sense for a, lot, a whole bunch of other reasons around you know, innovation and being able to do things more quickly and for startups being able to try things out without a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, now that Amazon's built out value-add services on top of the building blocks, there's so much value and innovation, you just get out of the box, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that you can actually transform a lot of really inter interesting industries and disrupt a lot of steady players. Um, to not take advantage of that lock-in and get that benefit, I think, is really a, a mistake by a lot of companies and a lot of people. And so take advantage of the right cloud and the right place and the right time, and I think that's the right answer all the time. Totally. Um, but I, I do think that Kubernetes is sort of kind of muddying the waters a little bit, uh, particularly in how, you know, <laughs> I just want to run the same container in any cloud. Well, the reality is that's not that's not likely. <laughs> uh, for a whole lot of other reasons that we get into, like, DNS and, and storage and all that kind of stuff. But how do you feel about Kubernetes in general and, and Kubernetes place in this multi-cloud world that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things that have happened with the, uh, the Kubernetes offerings there. Um, we recognize that there is a technical hurdle to using it and making it fit in already, which gives them, you know, it gives them an opportunity to train and, and invest in the building and learning of how to use their tools, which I, I feel like they missed a lot of that early on too. I still feel like people were missing. I, I remember being at Global Knowledge when Kubernetes was taking the scene and there was no training around for it. You couldn't really go get it. Same thing with Docker. A lot of those solutions, you would have them, they're available. And if you wanted to read it and learn it, you could go and use those services. 
When I talk about AWS, there's two parts. You can buy and click and choose from the self-service catalog, but you have to pair it with an information catalog that enables self-service ability. And I think that was one of the big problems I had with containers early on is they, they lack the information base to make it broadly accessible in the ways that uh, other managed hypervisor style solutions would, would provide. Even things like Heroku and some of the options that they had there still lacked some of the self-service components that I think make cloud computing really appealing to a lot of the, the developers and teams. So fast forward now, we've got all sorts of interesting management layers for Kubernetes. We've got lots of training, but we still have a bit of a disconnect between how you implement it and how it solves business problems, because it is still a very technical solution and it has a lot of gotchas when you think about how to scale it, how to take it to production level, how to maintain it through CI/CD systems. And so I think that maybe it's a bit of a chase here where you're like, okay, can Kubernetes make the turn fast enough to get ahead of the other managed flavors that already compete with it? And I think that's really what they're struggling with. It's not that it's not a good product, it's that I think it's positioned awkwardly in the space with perhaps the wrong types of buy-in for why we're using it. And, and I think that's ultimately part of the concern that I have with it. Because in the end, containers and using them to drive improvements for the business, I think that's a no-brainer but it comes down to the reality of supporting them and running them in production that has always been the biggest problems I run into. Anytime I talk to anybody who's used Kubernetes, it's always about the administration layers or about the orchestration of those solutions to meet specific performance or SLA goals that always end up being the burn for them. And again, that's, to me, that's an integration problem, just like going back to what I was saying earlier on. Everyone saws containers as the future and the solution to everything. And so then by default, Kubernetes has to be that solution to all problems in the space. And I, I think we are heading into a world where people are realizing the complexity, the cost, the centralized governance model of it mm -hmm. um, is problematic. And I think that will kind of put us into that trough of disillusionment if you're looking at the change process and how change happens in organizations. <laughs> um, I think we're, we're heading into that area for Kubernetes. I think it's going to be a rocky probably next year to 18 months for Kubernetes as people have these big clusters that are failing or having different challenges with scaling. Yep. And that's really going to be interesting to see how when we come out of the other side of this, we'll actually have really good use cases for Kubernetes where it's really successful versus the areas where, you know, maybe that's not the right idea. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't use it for this use case for these reasons. Um, but I, I think that's kind of where we're, we're at that tipping point of that. And that's why I think we're starting to see a lot of conversation changing to be about complexity and cost and management of this massive Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, um, you know, Google actually just had an article we covered on the Cloud Pod a couple weeks ago, where they just made GKE support a fifteen thousand node Kubernetes cluster. Like, oh my god! Like, <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that at all. Uh, you know, in their use case, it's a very, very machine learning use case that they just need to spin up capacity very quickly and then mm -hmm. shut it back down. For them, it makes sense, but. You know, if you're telling me my enterprise is going to go run a 15,000 node Kubernetes cluster, I think I'm going to go find another job because <laughs> yeah. that just sounds oh, awful. Yeah, yeah don't sign I, me up for that, please. Un, uh, unpopular opinion. I, I think in a few years' time, Kubernetes won't be anywhere near as relevant as it is today yeah. because I think all that will have been abstracted away and it'll just be part of a platform, whether it's a Fargate type thing or yeah. GKE becomes more transparent in the background and we just give them the workloads and they just do the work for us. I mean, obviously the technology will still exist, but I don't want to have to manage it. No. And, you know, I think one thing that we would be remiss if we didn't bring up too is that the era of containers is also the era of understanding really what, what we were trying to get down in microservices architectures, like earlier on in service-oriented architectures, things that were slowly evolving into these modular, flexible systems. And I think that when you look at what it takes to not only embrace Kubernetes, but also turn your monolith into these other pieces, these small, distributed, lightweight, serverless, you know, tray next generation applications, 
you're talking about a multifaceted hydra of innovation that you have to be able to handle. And it really, I think that's one of the disservices of what happened with containers. And Docker suffers from them this too. It's really not the tooling. Again, it's part of figuring out does my application fit this use case? Am I really looking at data patterns properly? Am I really looking at compute and resource patterns properly? Um, and in the end, asking developer teams to not only embrace a new tool, but embrace a new way of thinking about writing and supporting large web scale applications. So I think a large part of that is the web scale conversation and what it really means to be creating best practice design internet scale applications, um, regardless of what your container application looks like, what the container platform looks like. Uh, you can run into the same problems on any of them. EKS, Docker, Kubernetes, they're all going to run into the same problems if you don't understand how to make your application work properly with microservices and how to get from where you are now to wherever that thing is. This, this, this pinnacle that I've been describing on the horizon <laughs> that so many of us are sojourning towards. <laughs> I think that's a great time to wrap it up. Where would they find this great insight from you on, on Twitter or on CBT Nuggets? How can they find your content and uh, follow what you're doing in the space, which I think is really interesting and, and you know really helping make technology approachable for a lot of people? Yeah, thanks. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show here. Um, you can find me on cbtnuggets.com. If you want to look out there, you can find my training content. Uh, we offer a lot of courses for free, and we're open, and uh, we have seven-day trial opportunities, so you can jump in and check out my training. I also have a YouTube page. You can take a Google for Bart Castle on YouTube. You'll find uh, my training content, plenty of dinosaurs and fun anecdotes there. Um, you'll also find me on Twitter at CloudBart, and I'm actively involved in the AWS certified community on there. Uh, particularly deep within the free learning opportunities as well. I try really hard to stand between both of those arenas. I offer some, some things that are free to get people excited and help them along, and then also guide them towards what I consider my unique flavor of edutainment. So thanks again, CloudPy. I appreciate you guys having me on here. Yeah, it was great having you here, and uh, we have you back on the show again in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, friends. Visit thecloudpod.net to subscribe to the show, join our Slack channel, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find information on reaching our audience through a CloudPod sponsorship opportunity. A big thank you to today's guest, and thank you for listening.